Hi, and welcome to the April edition of the EVJ podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. Today we will discuss proximal suspensory desmitis with Dr. Sue Dyson and imaging pathology within the stifle with Dr. Laurie Goodrich. Dr. Sue Dyson is the Head of Clinical Orthopaedics at the Centre for Equine Studies within the Animal Health Trust. Sue will be discussing her most recent paper published in EVJ titled Proximal Suspensory Desmopathy in Hind Limbs, a Correlative Clinical Ultrasonographic Gross Postmortem and Histological Study. This can currently be found online in the Early View section. Hi Sue, thank you for joining us today to discuss your recent paper in EVJ. Could you start by briefly explaining how hind limb proximal suspensory dysmitis is currently treated? I know it's not a one-size-fits-all approach and the regime is based on the individual patient. So therefore, could you also include the prognosis associated with each treatment option? Yeah, um, we first, historically, when we first described proximal suspensory desmopathy in hind limbs, treated horses by rest. And in, in our original publication in 1994, our success rate was a dismal 14%. Now, I think that that study was dominated by horses with relatively severe lesions. And I don't think that that is necessarily representative of ho- all horses with proximal suspensory desmopathy. In fact, I think there is a subset of horses, a subset of young horses, which develop uh, proximal suspensory desmopathy relatively early in their careers. For example, after going through training for high performance sales. And those horses, I think we're dealing with a repetitive strain injury, which does respond relatively well to rest. But I think in older sports horses, um, rest is not really a valid treatment option. So we then came on to try both extracorporeal shockwave therapy and radial pre- pressure wave therapy. And we published a study which showed approximately a 40% success rate over approximately a six-month period. But uh, um, subsequent experience has shown that this does tend to be a relatively short-term response rather than a long-term response. Um, it is something that can provide pain relief, but I don't think it necessarily improves the infrastructure of the suspensory ligaments. Other studies have provided very similar results supporting that 40% prognosis. I think it can probably be a useful management tool in keeping a sports horse going for a short period of time. I think it can be a management tool for the help of managing pleasure horses with without great athletic expectations. But I think if you've got um, a sports horse for which you want long-term successful results, um, this is not the treatment option and you're better to be considering surgical management. The first surgical technique that was described was desmoplasty, that is splitting the ligament, and that um, resulted in around a 70% success rate uh, reported in a relatively small number of horses. The convalescent time was considerably longer than that which we have experienced with neurectomy of the deep branch of the lateral plantar nerve and plantar fasciotomy. And it's this latter treatment that we find to be the most reliable, provided that we select the patients uh, carefully. And by careful patient selection, I mean that we should have huge improvement in the baseline lameness following perineal analgesia of the deep branch of the lateral plantar nerve. And we need to be sure that the horse is well conformed because if we do surgery on horses with straight hock conformation, um, for example, a horse with a hock angle of around 165 degree angle, then um, the prognosis is poor and a proportion of these horses actually get worse after surgery. And I think that that's a very bad thing. They have ongoing degenerative changes. Assuming that the horse is well conformed and we have primary proximal suspensory desmopathy and no other contributing factors contributing to pain and lameness, then our published data reveals a success rate of around 78%, which is very similar to the other published studies. 
the other treatments that have been tried, but which there are no um, peer-reviewed long-term results, are the use of various biological preparations, such as porcine bladder matrix, marketed as A-cell, or platelet-rich plasma, or mesenchymal stem cells. There are no long-term results which have been presented for either PRP or mesenchymal stem cells, either in peer-reviewed literature or in conference proceedings. Uh, Rick Mitchell from the United States has described the use of porcine bladder matrix with about an 80% success rate, but to my knowledge, nobody else has been able to reproduce those results. So for me, if we've got a sports horse, um, then my treatment of choice is generally surgical management by neurectomy of the deep branch of the lateral plantar nerve and plantar fasciotomy. So what do you find are the common limitations um, encountered when imaging the proximal suspensory ligament? Well, I had never really thought that there were major limitations. Um, there are some horses in which the window through which you can look on the proximoplantar medial aspect of the limb is rather small and has a concavity which makes it difficult to get proper contact with the probe and to get really good transverse images in those horses can be challenging but generally speaking you can get diagnostic quality longitudinal images in those horses. Um, I have the benefit of having um, a, a, a transducer that can be converted between linear array and convex array and using the convex array uh, alignment for looking at the transverse images certainly gives me a bigger window in all horses and I think is a big advantage. Um, obviously, uh, you cannot properly evaluate the medial and lateral margins of the ligament unless you perform the scanning in the flex limb with the the tendons and ligaments relaxed, but in that position you can look at the medial and lateral margins. Uh, however, having said all that, there was a study published from North Carolina State University several years ago in which they compared the use of ultrasonography with MRI performed under general anesthesia. And using MRI as the gold standard, they claimed that the sensitivity and specificity of ultrasonography was poor, giving both false positive and false negative results. So they have very strongly gone out to um, the veterinary public, particularly in the US, saying that ultrasonography is unreliable and that we should be using MRI. I don't necessarily agree with those observations, which was one of the reasons for doing the study that was dis that we performed. So this is why you decided to conduct this study in particular, choosing to compare clinical, ultrasonographic, gross post-mortem and histological findings. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we also have to recognise that the subtarsal block of the deep branch of the lateral plantar nerve is not a specific block. It's not a suspensory ligament block. It is a block that can take out distal hock joint pain and other soft tissue structures in the proximal plantar metatarsal region. And for example, syndesmopathy between the third and fourth metatarsal bone. So I think whenever we're imaging this area, this area has to include the hock and the proximal metatarsal region. So everything I say um, it makes the assumption that we are imaging everything in that region. We're not just imaging the suspensory ligament. So what were your particular aims and hypotheses for this study? Well, because we wanted to demonstrate how useful ultrasonography was and realising that it's impractical to send all horses to MRI, both from a time point of view and financially, um, we set out to compare ultrasonography with post-mortem findings. Now, we were somewhat fortunate that the timing of this study coincided with the global economic recession. And this resulted in some owners being reluctant to spend large sums of money on attempting treatment in horses which had multiple problems contributing to poor performance, which is why we had access to a relatively large number of horses with the ability to examine them post-mortem. And without that, we couldn't have done this study. Um, and it was also good that these horses 
um, ha because they had multiple problems, we weren't treating end-stage, very severe proximal suspensory desmopathy, which would be unrepresentative of the general population. So they were a good population of horses to be investigating. So our principal aim was to correlate the pre-mortem clinical and ultrasonographic findings with both gross dissection findings and histopathology. Um, to, in part, advance our knowledge of histopathology too, because the number of publications relating to histopathology of proximal suspensory desmopathy in hind limbs is really very limited. I had some, some information published in my PhD, but there's very little else out there. So with respect to hypotheses, we hypothesized that ultrasonography would be a reliable indicator of proximal suspensory desmopathy based on histopathology as the gold standard. So can you give us a general overview of your study design? Well, it was a two-part study. And in the first part, we had 19 lame horses, uh, which all had a pre pre-mortem diagnosis of hind limb proximal suspensory desmopathy. We had excluded the distal aspect of the limb as a source of pain by failure to improve by low four-point nerve blocks. We had had substantial improvement in the lameness following perineural analgesia of the deep branch of the lateral plantar nerve and subsequently had had a negative response to intra-articular analgesia of the tarsal metatarsal joint, which is our typical approach to the diagnosis of proximal suspensory desmopathy. The horses had had no radiological abnormalities of the tarsus or proximal metatarsal region which could account for lameness and we, the, all the horses had ultrasonographic abnormalities which I considered were consistent with proximal suspensory desmopathy. And the included alteration in the shape or size of the ligament, poor demarcation of its margins, either focal or diffuse areas of reduced echogenicity, and loss of the long linear echoes that we see in longitudinal images in normal horses, um, and loss of their parallel alignment. And in all of these horses, they, there were other concurrent problems which were contributing to poor performance, which was the reason why the horses were put down. We also felt that it was necessary to include some control horses, and the control horses were uh, 10 in number, with no history or clinical signs of either hind limb lameness um, and a normal ultrasonographic appearance of the hind limb suspensory ligaments. Uh, and these were all examined by gross postmortem examination. And both suspensory ligaments from two of these horses were also examined histologically. So we had a comparison between the lame horses with predicted PSD versus the control horses. Um, and all the horses underwent my routine clinical investigation um, because they were only mildly lame in hand or not, not at all lame in hand. The majority were examined both on the lunge and either ridden or there was one horse which was a driving horse which was driven. And we graded the lameness under all, each of the circumstances under which the horses were looked using my conventional zero to eight scale. And then all the horses underwent a standard radiographic examination of the tarsus and proximal metatarsal region. And we examined the plantar aspect of the tarsus and the entire metatarsal region using ultrasonography. So we were examining not only the suspensory ligament, but also the deep diddle flexor tendon, the superficial diddle flexor tendon, the plantar ligament. And when examining the suspensory ligament, we looked at it in its entirety from the proximal aspect right down to the branches. Um, we graded the lesion severity of the suspensory ligaments into three classifications, mild, moderate and severe, based on predefined criteria in terms of percentage of the cross-sectional area um, uh, involved and the degree of alteration of the linear echoes in the longitudinal images and the presence or absence of either focal or diffuse areas which were either hypoechoic or anechoic. Um, then the horses were humanely destroyed 
and I performed the gross post-mortem examinations in all of the horses, dissecting them all in a standardized way and recording my findings um, both um, in writing and photographically. We, uh, or I had together with the histopathologist, Maria Panilla, um, had uh, decided that we would collect sections from predetermined anatomical sites, which were the same in all horses for the histopathological examinations. And so the sections were collected from these sites and then fixed and sectioned and stained using hematoxylin and eosin. And then Maria Panilla, uh, who's an experienced pathologist, uh, performed the histopathology evaluations, blinded to the origin of the horse, and using a predetermined uh, histopathological grading score, which we had adapted from some previous work that I had done with Roy Poole from the US, a very experienced soft tissue equine histopathologist. Um, and then we performed both descriptive statistics and uh, looked at the associations between the ultrasonographic and histological findings um, using chi-squared tests. Then there was a much smaller second part to the study um, in which we were looking at horses which were examined on a prospective basis, which um, had either recurrent lameness having undergone previous neurectomy and fasciotomy, or in which um, uh, we had predicted, based on our ultrasound findings and the results of the first part of the study, that there were likely adhesions between the suspensory ligament and adjacent soft tissues. So that's the overview of, of the two parts of the study. Thank you. So what were your most relevant findings for each part? Well, let's consider the first part, which is probably the most important part. Um, somewhat a little bit by chance, I have to say, the, um, the age and breed distribution and work distribution of both the control and the lame horses were remarkably similar. Um, considering the lame horses, they had a lameness duration of between one and 12 months with a mean of six and a median of five months. And in only 47% of these 19 horses was lameness detectable in hand. Uh, the maximum lameness grade ranged between one and five out of eight. So some of them are really rather mild lamenesses. Um, the maximum grade was usually observed when the horses were ridden in 10 meter circles with the lamer limb on the inside of the circle. So I don't believe this is a particularly extreme group of horses. With respect to the ultrasonographic findings, um, none of the lesions were graded as mild, 82% were graded as moderate and 18% were severe. And in seven of the horses, suspensory ligament branch pathology was also identified ultrasonographically. In 10% of the limbs of these lame horses, we predicted pre-mortem that there might be adhesions between the suspensory ligament and the accessory ligament of the deep digital flexor tendon because there was lack of separation of the structures in both transverse and longitudinal images. So now to consider the post-mortem findings and first of all the control horses of which there were 20 limbs. Now, in none of these horses did we identify any adhesions either between the suspensory ligament and the back of the third metatarsal bone or between the suspensory ligament and the adjacent soft tissues. There was some loose areolar connective tissue between the suspensory ligament and the plantar aspect of the third metatarsal bone in approximately the proximal third of the metatarsal region, but this was tissue which was readily broken down using your fingers. Um, and there also was some loose connective tissue between the proximal aspect of the suspensory ligament and the adjacent soft tissues, but again that was very easily broken down using your fingers. So in the control group we had 
no adhesions at the gross examination and in the four limbs that were examined histologically we had no histological abnormalities either and this was in marked contrast to the lame limbs because in the lame limbs in 27% of the limbs we found substantial adhesions between the proximal aspect of the suspensory ligament and the adjacent soft tissues and these had to be cut using a scalpel in order to break them down and then in 27% of limbs there was also substantial adhesions between the body of the suspensory ligament and the mid plantar aspect of the third metatarsal bone which actually extended further distally in six of the limbs and in 40% of the limbs, there were extensive adhesions between the suspensory ligament branches and the plantar aspect of the third metatarsal bone. And none of the adhesions between the uh, suspensory ligament and the third metatarsal bone were predicted ultrasonographically. Of those adhesions that we saw between the suspensory ligament and the adjacent soft tissues, in only four of 10, that's 40%, had these adhesions been predicted by our prospective ultrasonographic examination. So I was astonished to find the um, proportion, high proportion of horses in which extensive adhesion formation was present. Then when we consider the histopathological results, we identified histological abnormalities in the pre-selected anatomical sites in 35 of the 36 limbs. In the limb in which we identified no histological abnormalities, we had identified very tough and extensive adhesions between the suspensory ligament and the adjacent soft tissues during the gross examination. What I found very interesting was the distribution of the histological abnormalities between the collagenous tissue and the muscle tissue. I had previously assumed that the collagenous tissues was the major site of pathology, although in my PhD I had recorded some abnormalities in the muscle tissue. But in this study, the muscle tissue was abnormal in 97% of the limbs, whereas collagenous tissue abnormalities were identified in only 69% of the limbs. In some of the horses, there were combined lesions in both the collagenous tissue and in the muscle tissue, whereas in other horses, the lesions were confined to the muscle tissue with marked loss of muscle and replacement by fibrous tissue and adipose tissue. We also found quite a high proportion of neural abnormalities being present in 64% of the limbs, and these included axon degeneration, um, perineural fibrosis, and the presence of Renault bodies. Um, when we looked at the association between the ultrasonography and the histopathology, the most closest correlations were between abnormalities of the muscle and the uh, grading of the uh, ultrasonographic abnormalities. So based on this first part of the study, we could conclude with, um, based on the histopathology as the gold standard, that ultrasonography actually in this group of horses was a reliable predictor of proximal suspensory desmopathy, but we had a rather poor ability to detect adhesions. And from this, we speculate whether this might be a reason for some of the surgical failures because we don't identify adhesions, which may be a cause of surgical failure. Um, because we recognised such a high incidence of muscle pathology, it clearly indicates that if you finish up using MRI for diagnosis, it's really important that you evaluate the muscle tissue as well as the collagenous tissue. If you look at the published information so far, most of the studies describing MRI have focused on the 
um, collagenous tissue rather than the muscle tissue. So in part two, we had seven horses in which adhesions had been predicted based on ultrasonography pre-mortem between the suspensory ligament and the adjacent soft tissues in one or both hind limbs. Now, in those limbs in which we predicted adhesions, we always found adhesions, but we underestimated their occurrence and we failed to identify, once again, adhesions between the suspensory ligament and the third metatarsal bone. Now, what was interesting with some of these horses, which were surgical failures, was when they came back for reassessment, um, we required a tibial nerve block to abolish the lameness. There was either only improvement uh, following um, subtarsal analgesia without resolution of the lameness or no change in the lameness until we blocked the tibial nerve. And I think that this highlights again the importance when selecting surgical candidates is that they must block out completely with perineural analgesia, the deep branch of the lateral plantar nerve. So I think part two of the study gave added weight to the hypothesis that extensive adhesions may be a reason for surgical failure or subsequent recurrent lameness. Did you find any association between lameness grade and ultrasonographic grade or adhesion formation? No, um, but that may be because um, there were too few horses to show um, statistical association. Okay, so would you recommend ambulatory practitioners use ultrasonography when assessing the proximal suspensory ligament? Well, I think based on this study, we've shown that um, with good quality ultrasonographic images, then it seems to be a fairly reliable predictor of proximal suspensory desmopathy. Um, but this assumes that the practitioner is going to be competent at acquiring high quality images and competent at their in, in their interpretation, being very aware of what is normal and abnormal. And I have to say in some of the images that I'm sent for assessment, I don't think that the image quality is good enough to make an assessment. So whilst I very strongly advocate that ultrasonography can be reliable, ultrasonography has to be done by somebody who has the requisite skills. And I go back to my previous comment is about imaging the tarsal region and the metatarsal region, we mustn't just think about uh, imaging the suspensory ligament. We're looking at all of the soft tissues. We need to be critical of the image quality acquired and we need to consider also not just acquiring images in the weight-bearing limb but also in the semi-flex limb with the ligament relaxed so we can look better at the margins and we can also look uh, using an off-incidence technique, which may help us to identify fibrotic change within the collagenous tissues. So if um, pain has been localised to this area and the proximal suspensory ligament does not appear abnormal on, on ultrasound, would you then suggest using magnetic resonance imaging? Um, certainly if I'm in that situation, I review the clinical information I've got, I go back and look at all my images, and then I make a decision based upon financial reasons and the response to the blocks and the degree of lameness as to whether or not to use MRI or scintigraphy. Because doing a single site scintigraphy can be cheaper for an owner than MRI. And if we identify increased radiopharmaceutical uptake, for example, in the proximal plantar aspect of the third metatarsal bone, we've shown that we've got obvious bone pathology. We can't characterize that bone pathology, but we can say there is bone pathology present. Um, so I think scintigraphy is an option when costs are limited. 
Um, but MRI is probably our best modality. But I think we have to think about also the limitations of MRI and how we are acquiring the MR images. If you've got the facilities for general anesthesia and you've got um, a um, high resolution scanner, then uh, a high field scanner, then I think unquestionably you're going to maximize the information you get. Bearing in mind once again that you're not just examining the metatarsal region, you have to be examining the distal hock region as well. Now that's challenging if you're doing it in the standing horse because you've got to have a lot of patient cooperation um, because you're going to probably have to image at three separate sites to get in the entire region that you need to be assessing. So you need a long period of patient tolerance um, and you also have to have a horse which its limbs are not too long so that you can get the scanner high enough up. Um, the low field images acquired standing have um, quality limitations with respect to what you can see of the suspensory ligament and interpretation is not necessarily set, set straightforward. And I think you always have to warn um, an owner that there is the possibility that you could finish up spending a very considerable time with a low field standing setup, attempting to acquire diagnostic images and failing to do so. So the owner needs to be aware of that from the outset. So whilst, yes, MRI can give us potentially a lot of useful information about both the soft tissue structures and the osseous structures, one has to bear in mind its potential limitations as well. This study has produced many interesting findings, but what would your take home message be? Um, my take-home messages, I think, are that high-quality ultrasonographic images can reasonably, reliably predict proximal suspensory desmopathy. But ultrasonography unquestionably has limitations for the detection of adhesion formation. Having done this study, I think I have improved my ability to detect adhesions, but I still cannot reliably do so. And I think that the quest to identify adhesions is important because it may explain why some horses have recurrent lameness after surgical management and it may improve our patient selection criteria. OK, so well, thank you for taking time to talk us through a very relevant and interesting study today. You're very welcome. For our next interview, we're very lucky to be joined by two authors. Dr. Laurie Goodrich and Dr. Myra Barrett. Dr. Laurie Goodrich is an assistant professor within the College of Veterinary Medicine at Colorado State University. She has a particular interest in gene therapy and cartilage repair. Dr. Myra Barrett is an assistant professor in veterinary diagnostic imaging, also at Colorado State University, and she has a particular interest in equine musculoskeletal imaging, focusing on multimodality comparison studies. Laurie and Myra join us today to talk about their paper titled A Comparison of Arthroscopy to Ultrasonography for Identification of Pathology of the Equine Stifle. Hi Myra and Laurie, thank you for joining us today. You've joined us to discuss how best to evaluate pathology within the equine stifle. Could you start by telling us a little bit about the imaging modalities currently used to diagnose pathology of the various structures and comment on how sensitive and specific these techniques are. Uh, uh, well, starting, of course, we have our first line, which is always radiography. Um, what's most commonly used is our first line screening tool for any horse that um, blocks to their stifle or otherwise we're examining their stifle, um, which, as we know, is, is a great tool for bone. Um, of course, it's it's not going to give us the degree of sensitivity that we see with CT or MRI, but it's still a, still a very good way to look at, at bone. And it gives us indirect evidence about soft tissue injuries as well, um, you know, where the joint capsule or collateral ligament, meniscal ligaments attached to the bone. Um, followed by that, of course, is ultrasound. And here at Colorado State University, we, we um, pretty much always combine ultrasound and, and radiographs. And the ultrasound's... Um, really great at picking up a lot of the soft tissue changes, the joint 
looking at the joint fluid, the joint capsule. Um, it allows us to see areas of the joint that we don't see with um, arthroscopy, which of course we'll go into more detail, which is a part of the point of this study. Um, and, and, you know, of course the, the downside of, of ultrasound is, we, you know, we're not going to get a 3D image. The resolution we'll see with the advanced imaging and of course, the other is the, is the experience of the user. So it's not something that you can just send off to an expert to, to interpret. You have to have gained the experience in, in doing them. Um, CT and MRI are not as commonly available, limited, limited in the places that can do it. But they are out there. And CT, when we do CT, we have to use contrast intraarticularly to help us outline the soft tissues, but that does give us a chance to look at the cruciate ligaments and the um, some other structures that we're not going to see with ultrasound, some of the soft tissues. But again, it just gives us the outline. We're outlining that. And the same with the articular cartilage. We outline the articular cartilage with the contrast. And then, of course, MRI, which is the gold standard in, in humans and from, you know, what we use so commonly in the feet, lower limb joints in the horse is um, slowly growing in its in its um, availability, and that includes both low field um, open general anesthesia scanners as well as some high field scanners are able to do to do some stifles depending on the horse's conformation. And that that is the modality that gives us the biggest overview about detail of bone change, soft tissue, um, great looks at the at the menisci and the cruciate ligaments, and of course the articular cartilage. So, in, you know, in our ideal world, we'd have much more access to that, but but we don't, and so we take what we what we can get, what we learn from primarily in the in the daily clinical use, being um, radiographs and ultrasound. So, you've chosen to compare arthroscopy to ultrasonography to identify stifle pathology. So, what were the goals um, in the study, and what did you hypothesize? Well, the goals of the study, we, we, we do, because we do so much uh, imaging with the stifles as Myra just went through and then uh, arthroscopy as well, we felt through many clinical cases that there were certain things that we could see better with ultrasound and certain things that we could see better with arthroscopy. And we wanted to identify which of those things were better seen on which imaging modality. And so we took the imaging modalities that were, again, most commonly used, which were um, the radiographs and, and ultrasounds. Although in this, in this study, we just looked at ultrasounds and compared it to arthroscopies. And we, our goals, again, were to identify you know, what was most commonly seen on, on which entity. And then we felt that there were certain things seen better with ultrasound because of uh, the tight joint and arthroscopic exploration not um, revealing all of the things that are the the uh, ligaments and tendons and, and and meniscal borders that are seen typically in first for instance a human knee um, they're not seen with arthroscopy of the equine stifle because of, of a limited view so we wanted to identify that and just make make those um, aspects of the stifle that are seen best on each modality known, um, and also to educate practitioners that really to get a global view of what's pathologic in a stifle that you need to sort of use both of those imaging modalities together collectively to get a good idea of what's uh, going on in a diseased joint. Could you talk us through your study design and possibly explain the arthroscopic protocol for somebody unfamiliar with arthroscopy? Sure. So when we go into a stifle arthroscopically, um, a typical, let's say, joint exploration is we go in from uh, the horses, of course, on his uh, back um, in dorsal recumbency, and we go in from the lateral aspect, the joints in flexion, and usually that allows us to see a fair amount of the uh, medial femoral condyle, at least the cranial uh, half of the medial femoral condyle. So we go in from the lateral side uh, and do a thorough exploration. Uh, we tug a little bit with an instrument on the cranial tibial meniscal ligament. 
uh, and and try to get exposed as much axial border, um, axial and cranial border of the meniscal, medial meniscus as possible. Um, and then look at uh, the cranial and caudal cruciate ligament that you can see in that compartment. Then we switch from the media, the going uh, into the medial side, we switch the scope over um, and go in actually t- from the medial side to the lateral side, do the same sort of explore. And then uh, we will also, if uh, we see the need to go into the femoral patellar joint, uh, we go up into the femoral patellar joint with the joint in extension. And then uh, if it's an exploratory of, of the joint, then we typically in most cases go into the back of the medial femoral, or sorry, the medial um, tibi- femoral tibial joint uh, from the medial aspect and look at the back of the uh, medial menisci, meniscus and the medial condyle and, 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 and observe that. We typically don't look at the back of the uh, lateral femoral tibial joint because that's a little more difficult uh, to get in and there are some structures that can be damaged. So typically we don't do that unless there's uh, a need that we identify either with uh, ultrasound, radiography, or CT. So what was your study design in this paper? So all of the stifles had a thorough joint explore arthroscopically. And before that, they had, uh, most of them had radiographs, although we didn't put the radiographic evaluation in there. Um, but they all had uh, imaging, uh, ultrasound imaging, and arthroscopy. And it was to compare those two entities. Um, we, on the arthroscopic side, we had a, before we, reviewed each of the cases, we had a grading system. So each cartilage lesion, meniscal lesion, uh, cranial tibial meniscal ligament, uh, medially and laterally, all had, we had a grading scale for all of them. Um, and then the ultrasound grading scale, you want to comment on that? Yeah, so all the, rate, all the ultrasound images were reviewed retrospectively, um, and they were evaluated by two boarded radiologists, myself and Natasha Warby, as well as Anna Adrian, who was the the um, lead author on this paper. And she and we, the grading scheme, and I think this kind of moves into your next question too, was one we we designed sort of based on other similar studies, other studies we've done where we've had included retrospective review of ultrasounds or other. Um, soft tissue evaluations and the, and the, and it does tend to sometimes evolve as you begin the, the grading, you realize that you need to assess the structure a certain way or a different way. And then you, you go back and, and start again and start grading all over again to make sure you've covered all your bases. Um, and any, any of the, and this was all done by consensus and any of the, um, images that we felt like we could not adequately evaluate them, then that structure was excluded from the grading. Okay, so the grading systems were, well, the grading scales were based on previous published grading systems, or did you um, alternate them a bit? They, no, yeah, it definitely was a design, designed for this study. Okay. Okay, and were they useful? Would you I, use I, them in practice? To I, I believe so, and, and some of it is sort of, um, you know, we tried not to go too far off of how we would describe something clinically. So if we looked at something and we descri- described it as mild or moderate or severe, those are the same words we would use when discussing an ultrasound um, with another clinician or client. So we, we tried to make it as, as realistic to how our clinical evaluation of it would be to the, um, to the grading system. So what conclusions did you come to? Were certain imaging modalities, um, sorry, were certain injuries best imaged using ultrasound or arthroscopy or a combination of both? What did you find? So you know, one of the reasons why we started this study is um, we, we felt there, we see a fair amount of meniscal injuries here and, and in there were many cases that we had before we started this study that would come in and um, it was sort of understood 
and it was the perception perhaps of the owner referring veterinarian and and uh also us to some degree you know that we would see most of the meniscal tears arthroscopically so it would be sent in for you know a, an exploratory arthroscopy uh and then when we started doing more and more ultrasound of the stifle and and then uh Myra's also um a, done a paper uh with Frisbee, Werpee and McElwraith that does, that actually describes the borders of what you can see arthroscopically and what you can see with ultrasound. Um, that paper was sort of the basis of us realizing that, you know, there are many things that we can't see, especially with the meniscus, we can't see arthroscopically. Mm-hmm. So the, the main finding was that, you know, and really to get a global view of the stifle, you not only have to scope the joint, but you need to do diagnostic ultrasound as well, because really only about the cranial 30% or so of the meniscus can you see arthroscopically. Um, and so that was a, you know, a, a major conclusion was that there were horses that had meniscal tears that you could scope. And sometimes, sometimes they had axial lesions, but the um, horizontal or body of the meniscus, horizontal lesions or body um, of the meniscus, you know, those were not tears that could be diagnosed with arthroscopy. What about articular cartilage lesions and the meniscotibial ligaments? Did you find one or both better? Arthroscopy was better. Um, so when you had when you had articular cartilage damage in the absence of any subchondral bone damage, then arthroscopy was much more sensitive for detecting that than the than the ultrasound. Um, and when when you had the concurrent subchondral bone damage, then ultrasound did quite well as well. Now, interestingly, in the time since since you know the the study the end dates of those images, and um, in that time, scanning more and more stifles, I think we that's changed a little bit. Um, I more and more feel that I can um, be be more confident about articular cartilage damage, but. Some of that's more of a, a clinical comfort and an exclusionary comfort in that I know a lot of times what their joint's going to look like a little bit on ultrasound. And when I don't find any soft tissue injury, then I can say I suspect there's articular cartilage damage, and that tends to be what's found on arthroscopy. But that's much more of an indirect finding. And, and the reasons, even though we know we can see articular cartilage well with ultrasound, one of the reasons it just does not perform as well is because you're looking at a rounded surface and it's very hard to get your ultrasound beam tangential to the area that's most frequently injured. And when you're not perfectly tangential to the cartilage, then then you're not really able to assess it accurately. So that was definitely a limitation. And then the, the medial cranial or the cranial meniscal ligaments um, were another one that arthroscopically tears were identified more frequently than um, with ultrasound and Again, I think in the time since the study, since, you know, since the end of the, I should, not since the study was published, but since the end of the time frame of the images that we were evaluating, we have developed some more techniques and improved ultrasound machines that were, were better with the meniscotibial ligament. But, um, but that mild fraying, even on the, the original study that Lori was referring to, where we looked at normal joints, the one with them. Um, uh, frisbee. That one we we saw fraying as we simultaneously ultrasounded and scoped cadaver joints. We could make the ligament fray with the arthroscopy probe, and you could see it happening. You wouldn't be able to see it on the ultrasound. So, so we know that you're just not going to get the resolution for some of that. Those more mild changes. Okay. And what about your patella ligaments? Well, patellar ligaments, you can't, you, you only see a very small portion of those arthroscopically. Um, and, and so those, those are really, uh, you know, assessed by ultrasound mm. exclusively. Uh, and all the lesions that we've diagnosed here have been, you know, with ultrasound. And, and it's a very important part of looking at the global picture of, of stifle disease because 
before we looked at those, you know, I think that there were many, not many, but we do see a fair amount of our population that have um, patellar ligament tears. And, and I think it's an important part of the diagnosis. Now, sometimes that's a diagnosis that is made and that's the only thing that is wrong, but I also see patellar ligament tears um, in concert with other disease entities of the stifle, like medial meniscal tears, cranial tibial meniscal ligament, cartilage degeneration or tears. So I think it's very important to assess those patellar ligaments as well by ultrasound. Okay. So as you alluded to earlier, um, these conclusions were based on retrospective data. I think the 37 horses were seen between 2007 and 2011. Um, Do you feel they reflect, well, you talked a little bit about it, but do you feel they reflect the current clinical practice or have advances been made since then? And do you think this data may have changed slightly? I think overall the take-home message is not changed. Um, I think ultrasound has improved um, in terms of just the experience. We had multiple people scanning in the studies that we evaluated, whereas now it's a, it's fewer people doing it over and over and over again and, um, and better machines. I mean, the machine, the quality of ultrasound machines in the last, um, even the three years has just jumped up dramatically. And, and I think that that has certainly helped. So I, I think we are probably, I'd say, you know, detecting more articular cartilage damage, more cranial meniscal ligament tears, but, but I think that the baseline overall take-home message, what the strengths and weaknesses of each modality are, remain the same. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what would be your like, main uh, take-home message to ambulatory practitioners? I guess mine would be that I, I would make ultrasound a, a part of your inclusive imaging of the stifle in your assessment. I think there's a, there's a tendency, you know, if a horse... If you're going to send a horse to arthroscopy, you would always take almost always take radiographs, but you you may or may not do a, do an ultrasound or include an ultrasound as part of the exam, and, and I think that that it should be because arthroscopy is an excellent tool, but it doesn't give you the entire picture. Yes, I think to we there's no horse I would say that goes to surgery here that gets a stifle. A scope without getting radiographs and ultrasound because it's going to give you more of the global picture of what's going on. And you will see some of those things arthroscopically, but others you won't. And those other things are can, can also very well be affected. And if you miss that, then, then you miss the diagnosis. So combining those entities, I think, is very important. So for practitioners, get comfortable with ultrasound. Um, it's definitely, as Myra says, user-dependent and um, the more you do, the better you get just with any, like anything and make that as part of your, you know, entire workup of your stifle, um, besides the blocks, of course, that you do to diagnose, you know, the, the, the symptom part, make sure you do radiographs, ultrasound, um, and arthroscopy together if you're going to pursue surgery. Fantastic. Well, that's, yeah, some important points to remember when we're working up working up lamenesses and everyone should should have a try the more we scan the more we'll learn and the better we'll get so i think that's a great take-home message mm-hmm. okay thank you very much yes thank you're welcome. you thank Thanks. you i hope you've enjoyed listening today please join us again for the next edition